Rishi Mona, your host on India Book, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature, and we speak to authors who bring this to life. That he was a medieval king who, with a progressive bent of mind, dared to look ahead. to find that common ground for all his people to stand together that he was a medieval king who today is tempting us to look back into the past to see our future through his eyes while there were always voices that have tried to project the moguls as an islamic and just another islamic empire ignoring the civilization impact that they had on india akbar has been a shining light in an otherwise era of darkness those talking in terms of easy binaries always found a good muslim in akbar and a bad muslim in aurangzeb why is there such hatred for then akbar one of the most loved kings of india what was the journey like from being great to not so great and how is this india different from akbar's hindustan is he relevant in today's democracy allahu akbar by mani mukda sharma seeks to find answers to these questions while providing a profile sketch of the emperor his empire and the times that he lived in he compellingly draws this to the current milieu that we find ourselves in politically tune into india booked a podcast where we lean into india through the eyes and voice of its literature to hear what mani mukda has to say about akbar and understanding the great mogul in today's times Welcome to the show, Mani. Thank you so much, Ayushi. It is such a pleasure to be on your show. So for me, I think the most interesting part of this work was to see how you related the history of Akbar, not in isolation, um, and you know, sort of splattered it across different canvases of history. Why the particular narrative? I was trying to experiment with something new. I have described. the journey of this book in my, in my intro but i'll still repeat it for your audience i wrote a series of articles in the times of india uh, 2015 onwards on uh, this vilification campaign that was going on you know in in the media as well as because of uh, of the ruling party and its uh, various spokespersons official as well as unofficial uh, so they were saying things about albert and comparing him to you know people like adolf hitler so i thought that was pretty ahistorical and a very wrong understanding of history but which at the same time reflected uh, present prejudices seeping into the understanding of the past or let's say present present prejudices or the present shaping the understanding of the past so with that in mind i wrote these articles and these were spotted by my publisher bloomsbury and that's how the book was commissioned and now when the book was commissioned so they wanted a book on akbar now what different could i write on akbar because there have been so many books on akbar and the moguls akbar is in fact the most well known of all the mogal emperors and there has been tremendous amount of scholarship on akbar and, and the mogal empire and in fact it's quite disproportionate if you see the delhi sultanate in in comparison so there's much more on the mogal empire than uh, you have on the delhi sultanate or even the deccani sultanate so um the challenge was to find a new voice a new form of storytelling so i thought about it and uh, so 
since the book was commissioned without an objective or purpose in mind. So I really had to figure out a way to, you know, pull different threads together and then come up with a narrative. So then I proposed after some hard thought that maybe we should look Akbar not in isolation, but, uh, you know, situate him in his own time and context. And at the same time, you also look at him from a very modern perspective because that's where the politics lies. You know? So the politics of the past is happening in the present. So you, in order to address that, you you really need to take a relook or reevaluate history from that point of view. So I was not bringing Akbar to the 21st century and you know judging him by modern standards. What I was doing was I was situating in his own time and context. I, I think that is very important to understand because we tend to apply modern standards to uh, you know. 16th or 17th century figures so while it is very fun but then there's always this uh, risk of misinterpreting history in that process so i had to do two things in that so correct the perception at the same time situate him in his own time and context and also explain some of the modern problems that we have so that was pretty much the objective that i had in mind of course to what extent i succeeded is is another debate people can agree or disagree or have a different point of view with my approach but i at least thought that so to me, I think, uh, you know, there are some books that are meant to be written by some people. And a lot of times uh, you will find that a lot of similar themes, etc. keep getting picked up by different people and being written about. And of course, Akbar in the Mughal era is one that has more than enough scholarship around it, as you said. But to me, because you have a background in journalism, because you're an ardent history buff and you're a quizzer, all of these three things tie in together really well to um, be a very authoritative voice, even though you're not a historian, right? So how did your professional interest or your hobby of quizzing or your, uh, uh, you know, interest in history uh, sort of give you the conviction to write this piece? I guess you have made an interesting observation that is, I think is, is, is quite correct because I have been a quizzer and being a quizzer, you tend to do very obscure things at times and then you can make all these, you know, connections. So I think that came in really handy because of that years of experience uh, of quizzing. And, uh, and then, of course, my background in journalism and uh, that really helped. But I also had a background in history. I have an, I have an MA in history. So I was not uh, really somebody who had never studied history in college and the university. So these three things help really. So even though I'm not a, a professional academic historian, like I don't teach in the university, I don't have a PhD uh, so far, but uh, I still uh, had this background in history. So it was not something that was unfamiliar to me. So these, these Akbar had studied in college and university. Yes, the scope was uh, much narrower back then because now I was writing a book entirely on Akbar. Back then, he was just one of the chapters or one of the characters that we studied. And also, academic history is a bit different from uh, from the kind of history that I have written. For instance, uh, the focus is more on systems and processes than individuals. So you see individuals as products of systems and processes, not as shapers and movers of uh, systems and processes themselves. Um, so uh, that was really a challenge when I was writing a book on Alpha. So I was aware that maybe this is not 
a very academic approach. But at the same time, I was trying to be absolutely sure that I don't violate any academic tenets in the process, that I don't say things that I cannot support, that I don't say things that the academia cannot verify, because then your product becomes a work of fantasy. And I did not want that to happen. So I was trying my level best to you know, keep it entirely grounded in scholarship that exists already on new researchers as well, plus my own understanding and own observations, uh, because I studied the primary sources very closely. And because I was a quizzer, and I knew different things. So the moment I started reading these sources, I could figure out that, hey, okay, this is similar to something I have uh, seen in some other part of the world, in some other history. So and accordingly, I could make those connects. Uh, just to give you an example, I have talked about um, various armies and various generals at different points in time crossing flooded rivers. So you have Alexander of Macedon, who crosses the river and catches the army of Porus by surprise. The river was flooded at that time. It was raining. So he does that and he surprises the enemy. The same thing is done by Badamthan when he's fighting uh, Akbar's enemies. You know, and Humayun is still alive. He's the emperor and Akbar is just a governor of, of, of one province of Punjab. And Badam Khan crosses a flooded river and catches the Afghan army by surprise. And the Mughals win that. Stunning engagement. Akbar that, does that again, you know, when he's the emperor. And you see that, you know, Ahmad Shah Abdali does the same thing. You know, he, he surprises the Marathas at Panipat in 1761 because the Marathas had gone ahead towards Kurukshetra and they thought that because the river is flooded and they cannot cross it, Abdali cannot cross it either. But Abdali actually crosses the river and catches them by surprise. So, I could spot these different you know, threads, these trends in history. So the moment I was writing about Akbar and these episodes, I could connect it with, with other incidents. So being a quizzer really helped. Now being a journalist helped because I was commenting on the present as well. And as you see that the book has originated from a, a political incident. So therefore a lot of politics had to be there as well. So by being a journalist and because I've been writing all these stories over the years and I've been handling the different stories I bringing out, have been bringing out an edition of the Times of India. So uh, being familiar with all that, it was perhaps a bit easier for me uh, to make those comments because uh, I could see things uh, very Shahenshah-like uh, functioning in our present leaders. So that way I could make you know, or bring all these threads together. So I've been really lucky that, you know, so far the academic reviews have been positive. The rigor in the research is so palpable. I think there, there are some 18 pages of just the bibliography in the book, uh, which is commendable. And to be able to pull all of this off with a day job and everything else that you're interested in is, is even more commendable. I think we've delve a lot into your journey while writing this book and you know what what went into it so uh, why Akbar and why him as this figure which clearly cuts through your book if I may call it a nationalist statesman and why the particular thread of uh, tying it back to the present in the context of the person also Bazaar history if I may call it Bazaar history now propagated through WhatsApp messages 
how do you reconcile the bazaar history with the academic journey you took how do you put the man in this picture and and what does akbar the figure mean to you and mean to what you perceive india to be so you see uh, as you said bazaar history also shapes our understanding of historical character you know so most of the time you know your your minds are pretty much made up before you enter the educational system or let's say you go to college you read about the moguls but by then you you already have heard about the moguls from your parents or from other elders family you no know, who may have a, a distinct view about about the past okay so and in india i think what is happening right now it's very easy to blame on the whatsapp forwards but we need to understand that certain prejudices have always remained uh, for instance the complaint that is made and that's a very valid complaint as well when people say that our history is very mogul centric very north india centric uh, this is absolutely true because uh, you don't have enough emphasis laid on the histories of other parts of the country like for instance we know about the cholas because they were part of our curriculum but we don't know about the cholas in greater detail like we do about the moguls similarly we know about um, the sultans of delhi some of them because not all of them but some sultans of delhi are very familiar to us maybe because of uh, popular depiction of them um, but we don't know much about the sultans of gujarat or the sultans of the deccan but unfortunately when we make that complaint we really confine it to the moguls we don't see that you know it has always been these north indian empires that are talked about the most so you talk about harshvardhan so let's say the, the so called hindu period you know before the coming of islam who are the dynasties or the empires that we talk about the most the mauryas again a north india centric empire who ruled from magadh we look at uh, harshvardhan again a north india centric empire who ruled from kanauj and so on so the guptas again a north india centric empire so this focus has always been on north india so you know when we pick up gossip and that's why you know in our families we have or at least i have heard from other elders you know the depiction of the moguls was never really negative they would say certain things don't make sense to you at that time but now of course they do because you see that they had a very different sort of prejudiced understanding of history so that's your bazaar talk you know that that's how it shapes your approach the problem with with these characters is that different people perceive them differently now my book has been read by different people and different people have understood akbar differently even though you know it's the same book that i have written and and the message that has gone out has been very different to different sorts of people so for for the trolls it's it's like a glorious depiction of akbar it's a so called whitewashing of his uh, quote unquote genocidal crimes so i i keep getting accused of you know whitewashing history and all that but at the same time uh, you have as you mentioned you have got a very different understanding of akbar from my so that understanding is very different it differs from person to person so um for me akbar was this mythical figure till the time i started you know researching for my book um he has even though there have been much criticism about akbar and some of his actions for instance the conquest of chitor which was quite bloody but by and large even the hindu nationalists don't take on akbar head on because they know that after some point the propaganda will not work because the 
depiction of Akbar is by and large very positive, uh, even in, in bazaar circles. It's easier to vilify Aurangzeb. It's much more difficult to do that with Akbar. Uh, Akbar was a very mythical sort of a figure for me. Uh, even though I had studied him in college, I had this very close association. I have mentioned that in, in the intro of my book that Akbar was somebody who had never lost a battle. Someone like him was quite an inspiration for someone like me, you know, who was not yet 20 and this Kargil war had happened and you know, there was a lot of patriotism and nationalist fervor uh, back then. So uh, I was still in school at that time. So I, my introduction to Akbar but had just begun at that time. And uh, this whole war happened. And uh, and then you read about somebody who never lost a war. So you know, that, uh, for somebody like me, was you know, always interested in the military. It was quite something. So Akbar became a hero almost instantly. And by and large, you know, as I studied him in the university later, uh, different facets of him. But then um, the, the image was quite positive. But of course, there were more nuances now. So I knew about his religious policy, about his Rajput policy, and so on. So the syllabus uh, was pretty much structured that way. So it gives you a very structured view of Akbar and the Mughals. Anything beyond that requires a deeper engagement, which happened in my case when I started writing this book. And I realized that some of the things, some of the perceptions that I had about Akbar was actually quite different. So Akbar starts off as a very unremarkable uh, ruler so he was he's just like others uh, in his family or before him um so he's guided by others we have the regency of badam khan and badam khan is uh, calling the shots then for a very brief period you had people like shamsuddin atka khan mahamanga and her son adham khan uh munam khan so these are the people who are pulling the strings after that for a while and uh, till the time of course five years later akbar emerges as an independent king and somebody you know who is free of all influences uh, he's no longer a puppet of anyone but uh, in these four or five years that you see that he's he's very pretty unremarkable as a ruler so you know abul fazal his his biographer or should we say hagiographer so he you know says things about the emperor that he was behind the veil so I, I like that expression he was behind the veil because his personality had not been it had not matured it had not been exposed so people saw him through baron khan and all these other now when i was in college the second phase which is when mahamanga and and others, you know, they are calling the shots. That is described in a rather offensive manner as a petticoat government because we have a woman who is pulling strings. So I, I thought that was pretty offensive. You know? So you see that the understanding, the modern understanding has also changed, you know, for over 15 years, 10, 15 years from when I was a student to now uh, being an author. Um, so that understanding had changed and uh, so after that after this brief phase we see that akbar starts taking decisions on his own and he does things uh, which are very cruel and uh, but at the same time he also shows this you know very receptive mind that he goes to mathura on a hunt he sees that there are a lot of pilgrims hindu pilgrims who are coming because mathura and vrindavan are still very holy cities for the hindus because of their association with Lord Krishna. And Akbar goes there on a hand and he sees that there are devotees who have come from different parts of the country and they are paying a tax to the Mughal Empire. And uh, so he asks them, why are you paying money? And they say that, you know, we have always paid this money to your government and to governments that came before you. So we have to pay a tax to you so that we can uh, worship our gods and see 
the holy places associated with them. So Akbar, he walks back. He does not ride back. He walks back. Okay, comes back to Agra and announces the scrapping of that tax, the pilgrimage tax. And a year later, this was 1563, in 1564, he announces the scrapping of Zazia, so which uh, every non-Muslim had to pay to a Muslim state. So you see that before the coming of the Mughals, even the Mughal state was also perceived to be a Muslim state, but uh, the, the, the dynasty that they uh, toppled or the state that they toppled, the Delhi Sultanate, that was also that was understood as a as a Muslim state because you had all these taxes and then you had the ulema who would uh, you know decide things in terms of the Sharia. Even the sultans always had a very tenuous relationship with the ulema because no sultan could actually conform to the tenets of Islam. Uh, there would always be occasions when, you know, all those, uh, those the, the Sharia will be violated or will not be followed. That's a different debate. I'm not getting into that. But uh, the fact that a Muslim king, for the first time, decided to scrap these taxes, and this was before he married these Hindu women, I think that that showed a very receptive mind, that he was willing to take certain things, do certain things, which would, you know, help his people or help his subjects. So the, the, that he started to look at the people he was ruling as his own people. So I think we see a start in that. But at the same time, he was also doing other kinds of things like, you know, he was persecuting the Mahdavis who are Muslims, but again, they, they were not seen to be, you know, the true worshippers. And he was also pretty much cold to the Shias. And uh, there were instances when he, you know, persecutes or, you know, at least one instance when, you know, he, he digs out, he orders the excavation of a grave of a prominent Shia uh, Sufi uh, mystic was buried at the, at the Dargah of Hazrat Nizamuddin. So he orders that body to be excavated, the remains to be excavated and thrown into the river. So this is also Akbar. And you have this other side of Akbar, where he is, you know, showing a very tolerant approach and he is you know, keeping people together, trying to bring everyone together. So I have explained this as the evolution of a personality. So he was growing. He was not a static personality and that makes him very human. So the mythical Akbar, he appeared in front of me in his different shapes. And... It was remarkable, I thought, that, you know, somebody who was doing this, he was also doing that at the same time. That's how rulers are, and that's how 16th century uh, rulers were like, because, you know, for, for the British, you talk about uh, Queen Elizabeth I, you know, they are very proud of the fact that it was a woman, you know, who who helmed the Tudor dynasty, and and under whose reign, the Sir Francis Drake led the Navy, the Royal Navy, defeated uh, the Spanish Armada. So, in terms of conquests alone, Elizabeth I comes out as as a great queen. So, the, the British are really proud of that. And you see that, you know, apart from doing this, she was also persecuting the Catholics. So, that's how historical characters are, you know. So, you have to accept them with their shades of grey. And uh, certain modern standards did not apply there. So, today, uh, if you say things about uh, that are insensitive to uh, say feminists or the lgbtq plus people then you would be immediately branded a bigot but back then those sensibilities did not exist 
So we have to keep in mind that as well. So Akbar appeared in these different shades and I found all of that quite fascinating because now he was a very human king, a man with his failings, with his frailties, with his strength as well. So he would, you know, unnecessarily put his own life in peril while doing certain things. This constant need to be accepted and to be seen as someone, you know, who was not a mlecha. Mlecha means a savage or a foreigner who is outside the Hindu uh, Varna system. So until the time of Akbar, Muslims, Muslim kings were referred to as mlechas. From Akbar onwards, we see that that has changed. So uh, to be able to come to a point where he was now seen as, as king, by even Hindus, I thought was quite remarkable. And I had given this example earlier as well. Uh, there was somebody called Banarsi Das, who was a merchant, and later on he produces some, some scholarship in the time of Jangir. Banarsi Das was a merchant in Akbar's empire who had never seen the emperor, but he was very happy that you know Akbar was, was his emperor. So he was a Hindu, a Shibhat. So when Akbar dies, this man, he hears the news and he was coming down the stairs and he has a fall. He injures himself badly. And then he says that, you know, I always had my faith in Lord Shiva. But if Lord Shiva cannot, cannot protect, could not protect my emperor, what God is he? So, you know, that is the kind of sentiment that Hindus in Akbar's empire uh, had for him. So I thought that was quite remarkable for me. But at the same time, you had so much opposition. So now... The whole uh, understanding of Akbar gets reduced to either his abolition of Zazia or his conflict with Mewar, with Ram Maharana Pratap especially, or his marriages to these Hindu women. So, you know, but all of that together makes Akbar. So I was trying to do that. And uh, like you said, you know, in, in, and my book starts with 1941. So you have somebody called Adi Munshi from Bombay writing a letter to the editor of the Times of India, and uh, he says that Akbar was the greatest Indian nationalist of all time. Now, that was his modern understanding of Akbar. So, Akbar was not a nationalist. The concept of a nation did not exist. Nationalism was quite alien, not just in India, but even in Europe. So, uh, he was not a nationalist, nor was he a secular, nor was he a liberal. So, these are all modern tags that we have applied. And uh, sadly, uh, some commentators have also called him an anti-national now, which I think is even funnier. But um, but I think uh, Akbar appeared to me in different shades, and I thought that was lovely. So that was pretty much what I have achieved personally with the book, that I, I have come out of it uh, more well-informed about Akbar. And he's no longer that mythical figure in front of me. So I was in a bit of a trance when I was hearing you speak about this section till I like woke up and, and you know, I was like, uh, wow, <laughs> that was amazing. And you know, a lot of these things are um, things I wanted to ask you about, which is obviously the pilgrimage tax piece and this, um, the whole uh, attention uh, with the Rajputs, for instance, and then his policy there. And and we began this podcast with me saying that, you know, he was like a nationalist statesman. 
you're right the concept of a nation does not exist right or the lens with which i ascribe that word or anyone else does and even laughable things like i'd say an anti-national is, is us looking at it from you know our 21st century lens right and and that doesn't hold and it's so fascinating but i think even with removing those adjectives out of the picture that whole feeling of having read about a statesman or having read about someone who married both physical and moral courage and leadership um is is this sense you know my next question to you money is um and and after this very very intense discussion is a little light hearted what do you think personally huh and and you mentioned about the kind of personal impact uh, that writing this book and the demystification of akbar has been for you but what do you think about the depiction of akbar in popular culture whether it's prithviraj kapoor or hrithik roshan <laughs> I think I think I am actually quite fascinated by both depictions because uh, you know Mughal e Azam is is a movie that I that I watched on TV as a child and uh, when I was in the university at that time it was re-released in a colored form so the colorization of the movie had happened it was re-released in the theaters so I was fortunate enough to you know go to a theater and watch it on the large screen you know, and the colors were like stunning you know i was actually you don't realize the richness of of the sets or of the costumes until you see that on the big screen in color okay so the same movie appeared in a very different way in front of me so i was like completely mesmerized so and and um that that sort of a feeling also happened again though to a much lesser extent uh with with jodha akbar jodha akbar uh, uh Hrithik Roshan for me was a bit difficult to accept as Akbar because I already had this rich image of Prithviraj Kapoor. So you know when you mention Akbar even today, it's the face of Prithviraj Kapoor that comes to my face. Um, but then Hrithik Roshan was very different from that. That was my uh, view till 2015, 2016. Now I see it very differently. Now I think I like Hrithik Roshan as Akbar because the kind of vilification that has happened ever since. I don't think it is possible anymore for any film director in India to make a movie which glorifies a Muslim king or at least projects him in positive light. It is no longer possible, and that's the sad realization that I have had uh, over the last six years. Now, uh, let's take out the history part of these uh, movies. These were stunningly rich movies, but the moment you bring history into it, then you realize that okay, these are way off the mark you know mughal azam especially was way off the mark you know the way it showed akbar as this you know family patriarch you know who has very strong class consciousness that he is not going to allow his son to marry a dancing woman when the reality is completely opposite so many mughal emperors married dance dancing women so you had jahadar shah who was in love with somebody called imtiaz mahal a dancing woman who was you know given the glory glorious name of imtiaz mahal you had bachsha mohammad shah who is also called mohammad shah rangila he was in love with another dancing woman uh and who became known as putsia begum after marriage and she built this huge garden which rivaled the older garden of jahanara begum the tisazari bagh she built kutsia bagh as a rival and uh, only one structure remains but if you see the uh, the stencil sketch made by 
an English traveler, which exists in the British Library today, you would find that it was a remarkable place. At least the palace was so so magnificent uh, in the sketch. But if you go there, you don't you won't realize it the the glory of that anymore because of course it was reduced to a an English landscape garden from being a Mughal fruit garden. But uh, so just to give you this example that you know there were many many Mughal emperors who who had dalliances with dancing women or who ended up marrying dancing women or 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 the British would offensively refer to them as the Notch girls. So uh, the Mughals did not have that. The moment you see that in Mughalism, you realize that, okay, this is a very British-influenced understanding of the past. Because, see, many of the things that we have, many of the, of the cultural abhorrences that we have today are a direct legacy of the British Raj. The British brought their Victorian sensibilities and suddenly courtesans, dancing women were seen as uh, bad elements of the society so their depiction changed in cultural uh, the the concept of the tawaif from being a positive uh, woman in in mughal times they suddenly became uh, very negative they, they were portrayed as prostitutes uh, so and then of course after that that sensibility was carried forward even during the freedom movement, our great leaders of the freedom struggle, even though they were very enlightened in many ways, but they also carried forward the same colonial British prejudices. So they were also products of Victorian and Edwardian societies, but they had these prejudices at the same time. So uh, you see that in Mughalayaza, you know? that's, that's, that's very uh, colonial phenomenon you know? or post-colonial India, colonial and post-colonial India. That you know, you look at people from uh, a class angle. So Akbar talking derisively about an Arkali, a woman who is, you know, uh, she is referred to as a Londi, you know, who is a, like a dancing woman. Uh, it's a very offensive term, actually. But um, so you see that Akbar doing in this, indulging in this class prejudice, which the real Akbar may not have done because that consciousness was not there at that time. Um, so we also have to understand that uh, when you when you talk about bloodshed in the Mughal family, there was no rule of primogeniture. So not just princes, but even slaves who were Muslims were entitled to kingship. Okay, So you just had to be the able man and you could be a king or a sultan. This, this is not just about the Mughals, but also all other sultans. That we have seen, you know, there were several slave sultans that we must have heard. The slave dynasties was quite well known. The Mamluks, Qutbuddin Aybak, Yasuddin Balban, you know, all these people, and uh, there were slaves. And you see many African sultans. Four of them in quick succession. These were Hapshi sultans. Hapshi again is today a, a pejorative word, which is used for black Africans. But uh, at that time, uh, it it was a term to refer to Abyssinians, Ethiopians, you know, Al-Habsh. That's how that region was called. So that's why Habshi. And uh, you had uh, many of these people who occupied very important positions. So you had, uh, uh, they were being kingmakers in, in the history of India. Or four of them were sultans in Bengal, the Habshi Sultanate. You don't realize all that uh, if you see the depiction of Akbar or, or that period. So if you see that movie Razia Sultan, my God, 
that is completely removed from history, not just the costumes that they wear, but also the content uh, is very different. The same goes with the Mughals. So Akbar comes off as this family patriarch, you know, who has these class prejudices, who hates Anarkali just because she is a woman from a humble background. And he will not let his son marry. So the real rebellion of Jahangir, which happens in Akbar's lifetime, that is depicted as one being of love. So he fights for his woman. That's why he rebels against his father's authority. Now, if you take out all of that aside, it's a very rich movie. It's a delightful movie. I still watch it every time it is aired. And both my wife and I, you know, we love the way Madhubala delivers her dialogues, you know. Uh, that's the kind of dialogue you know, which gives me goosebumps. <laughs> so you don't hear that richness in Jodha Akbar because uh, the dialogue writing is different now. The, the understanding of Urdu is very different now. But again, in terms of historical accuracy, Jodha Akbar was more accurate than Mughal Azam. Mughalayazam showed both Jodhabai and, and Anarkali. Jodhabai showed only Jodhabai. So there was nobody called Jodhabai. Akbar had one Rajput wife. Uh, like He had more Rajput wife, but the first Rajput wife was somebody who may have been called Hakhabai or Hir Kanwar, who was a princess of Amer, a Kachwahavum. But in both these movies, she is shown as the only wife of Akbar. In reality, this Rajput wife was the fourth wife of Akbar. He had married three others before then and he would marry more after them as well. So uh, if you look for history in these two movies then you would be disappointed. But yes, by and large the chronology is pretty much okay in Jodha Akbar and some of the characters are fascinating as well. But then Akbar's equation with his, his mother is shown in rather poor light. He is shown as to be more closer to Mahamanga when the real Akbar actually abused Adam Khan, called him Bachai Lada. When he kills Shamshuddin Abdul Khan, Abul Fazal says that, you know, Akbar in a fit of rage, he referred to him as Bachai Lada. Bachai Lada uh, in Farsi means uh, son of a bitch. Okay. So that is uh, by doing that, he's also abusing Mahamanga. And here he is, you know, very chaste, Urdu speaking, you know, which is, you know, and Jodha, Jodha will, or the Rajput characters will speak in Hindi and all the others will speak in Urdu. The Muslims will speak Urdu, the Hindus will speak Hindi. So this is the stereotype that we are living with, right? And you would find that they have been even more disgusting. I'm using the word disgusting because they were actually quite disgusting. I have given examples. Uh, there's this serial which was uh, supposed to be a biopic of, of Maharana Pratap, um, Bharat Kavir Putra Maharana Pratap. There, you know, history was completely twisted where Akbar and Pratap were childhood adversaries. Okay, so they meet in childhood where Akbar is constantly trying to seduce while being a teenager, a little girl <laughs> who is involved in the love triangle already with the young Prana Pratap. Okay, somebody <laughs> called uh, Lal Kanwar. So, uh, and then, you know, the way Akbar, the, the sorry, the young Pratap comes and defeats Akbar's purpose, you know. He stops a Hindu girl from being seduced by a Muslim teenager who is also the emperor. Now, uh, that is pretty much in tune with the politics of our time. 
Okay, so Jodha Akbar was still a very positive depiction, but now it's no longer it's, it's no longer possible. And you would find that increasingly, you find increasingly there'll be similar depictions uh, of Muslim characters, not just Akbar, but of Muslim characters are being these, you know, evil-minded, bad, sinister people who are forever plotting, not just the men, but even the women. So <laughs> I think that's a sad reality. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I am going to head into our last section, Mani, where I'm going to ask you snappy questions and you just tell me what is off the top of your head. Um, so I'm going to start. Um, ebooks or paperback? Paperbacks. Quizzing or journalism? Both, I would say. Reading or writing? Reading. The past or the present? The present, the live for sure, but the past is study. The academic history of Akbar or the bazaar history of Akbar? Academic, any day. One change in uh, the history curriculum you would like to see in this country? Uh, get more authentic historians to write them and not uh, fiction authors. Or nowadays, that is the trend to get, you know, uh, to rewrite history. Of course, rewriting is always fun, but of course, that has to be done by competent professional historians, not lay people who, who have a different understanding of history. What's your favorite fictional book? Um, I think uh, there have been several, actually. Uh, Wuthering Heights is like the all-time favorite. What's your favorite non-fiction book? My most favorite non-fiction book right now is India in the Persian Age by Richard Eaton. Who's your favorite historical figure excluding Akbar? Tipu Sultan and Nawab Haider Ali, both father and son. And lastly, what's one reading recommendation that you would like to leave the listeners with that they should really read to get a better sense of the nation? Um, well, I would say this is a tough question. I would say uh, Nehru's Discovery of India is a very good book to read if you are patriotic and you are thinking about building a decent nation, rebuilding the nation. I think I would recommend that for a lay reader. Uh, for specialists, of course, the recommendation would be a bit different. But I think for your audience, I would recommend this. Please read Nehru's Discovery of India. Mani Mukda is on Twitter as The Quizzical Guy. Do not forget to follow him. You can also order his book from any independent bookstore or from Amazon. Do not forget to tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcast. <laughs>